Hello and welcome back to the Arsenal Therapy Podcast. My name is Farhan, also known as Gunner since 96. And as always, joining me here this evening is Adam Keyes. Adam, are you ready? Absolutely. Okay. Where will Declan find next season? As a six or as an eight? Six. Arsenal won't make more than £100 million in sales. Agree or disagree? Disagree. Are youth prospects better off staying at Arsenal? Yes. Okay, good stuff. And before we get chatting with Adam, I should also mention that for this episode, we've got ourselves a very special guest. Yes, that's right. Joining us here this evening, it gives me immense pleasure to say that we've got Harry Simiou from the Chronicles of Aguna. <laughs> Bit of a gimmick. Um, Harry, thanks for joining us this evening. How are you doing, my friend? Thanks for having me, guys. Absolute pleasure. I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm trying to take it a little bit easy over the course of the summer, or at least that was the plan. But then Arsenal have been really, really busy so far in the transfer market, and that's just not happened. But I'm good. I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's great fun and uh, looking forward to this podcast. How are you guys? Yeah, very, very well. Um, it's been a bit of a quiet week, hasn't it, in terms of, well, let's say quiet in relative to, to the to the first few weeks that we've had. Um, so, but before, before we get into the show, um, I wanted to ask if you could maybe give our wonderful listeners an introduction into who you are. So I am uh, the host of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, um, which is my baby and um, my favorite thing to do in the world. Um, and I'm also a broadcaster as well. I work uh, for BBC Radio London as their Arsenal reporter, uh, do uh, some work over on TalkSport and uh, and whoever else will have me as well. So um, yeah, um, podcaster slash uh, radio guy, basically. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely got the voice for it. That's for sure. It's very distinctive. We can, we all know um, when Harry's speaking um, with all the you know the 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 short form uh, media that's been going around over the last year or so, especially the talk sport ones. Um, let's start off by 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 having a quick chat about our brand new signing Kai Havertz um, and and some of the incomings in over the next week or so. We know that Kai Havertz has been completed and I think it's the first time that Arsenal have well Arsenal fans have announced the signing before Arsenal themselves um give us your thoughts on Kai Havertz um Harry and where you see him playing because there there seems to be some controversy as to whether he is going to be playing as um a midfielder as, a, as an eight or uh, potentially where he was playing at Chelsea last season as a, as a nine-ish? So I, I've got evidence of this as well before people say I'm making it up, but I did do a show uh, on my podcast just 
before the Kai Havertz to Arsenal rumours started to gather pace. Uh, I think it was a day or two before and I was sort of drawing up my summer wish list. Um, and although Kai Havertz wasn't my number one choice, he was a player that I highlighted because I thought that there would be an opportunity, A, to get him out of Chelsea for a very reasonable amount of money because of their situation, the need to move on players because of FFP and also the fact that, you know, they're just gutting the squad at the moment after really overstacking it in recent seasons. Um, and I've always looked at Kai Havertz and thought there's more in there than what we've seen at Chelsea. And that goes way back to when he was playing in the Bundesliga. Um, I was really lucky sort of when we came out the other side of lockdown and football was just getting started again to get some work on some Bundesliga games. And I covered, I think, three or four games involving Kai Havertz in the space of a couple of months. And I remember saying to sort of friends of mine, this guy really does look a top quality player. He seems so intelligent. Um, his movement is brilliant. He doesn't look like the fastest guy in the world, but he's deceivingly quick across the ground. He's got the physical build uh, to cause people problems up top as well. And, and I really was excited about what he would become. Obviously, he signed for Chelsea and that was disappointing. Um, and, and what's also been disappointing from a Chelsea standpoint, I guess, is how he performed uh, in blue and white, with the exception of obviously that one uh, big moment, the Champions League final goal. You could argue that that would, you know, trump anything else that he could have done in his Chelsea career. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said he didn't underwhelm uh, at Stamford Bridge. But I did highlight him as somebody that I'd quite like to see us move for or at least inquire about just in the possibility that we could get him in in a cut price deal. And I have to say £65 million, which is what we think it is in total, including the add-ons, is a little bit steep for me. I think that Arsenal... Um, you know, we're right to 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 have a look at Kai Havertz. I think that something between 45 and 50 million pounds would have felt a little bit more reasonable to me. But obviously Arsenal really like the player and they've gone that extra mile to secure the signing. So I'm pleased that we've gone out and got him, um, albeit if I think we've paid slightly too much. With regards to his position, this is the the real interesting part because I I'd sat there and said, look, I understand why people are saying he's going to come in and play in midfield. I just don't personally see it. Based on what I know of Kai Havertz, I've always looked at him as someone who has the need for freedom and, and doesn't really have the positional discipline that you would require in Arsenal's midfield. Now, during last season, I think one of the things that was best about the side was that Xhaka playing on the left side of the midfield was able to affect games going forward, but was also able to just tuck in and fill holes and spaces when Zinchenko, for example, would venture into midfield or when, uh, you know, if Kirantini was playing, he'd bomb on on the outside. So I think that for me, you need a bit of discipline and, and you need at least one of the two eights to be disciplined and aware of what's going on because Martin Odegaard, as, as hard as he works, isn't that defensive player. He isn't going to drop into the holes. So one of them needs to support the lone defensive midfielder. And that's what puts me off the idea of Kai Havertz playing there. Does Mikel Arteta think he can get away with two adventurous eights in Odegaard and Havertz? Maybe he does. Um, but for me, I'm not 100% sure about that. However, when he was signed and when the announcement came out and the club released the interviews, I think Arsenal made a very clear point of saying, uh, and it was through Mikel Arteta that Kai Havertz is coming in to give us options in midfield. So I think the answer is there. He's going to play in midfield by the looks of it, but he can play as a nine. He can play on the right. He can play on the left and he gives us options. And it feels to me like versatility is right at the top of the list of things that Mikel Arteta is looking for this summer. So hopefully it'll be a good fit. 
Yeah, Adam, as, as Harry just uh, highlighted, versatility will probably be the buzzword for the remaining uh, remainder of the transfer window. And for good reason, too, because we know going into next season, there's going to have to be a lot more fluidity in the way that we play, as well as um, we need to keep a few surprises up our sleeves when we're playing against, uh, coming up against some of the big guns. Uh, one of the issues that I foresee in happening with Kai Havertz in midfield is the defensive capabilities as well as the discipline uh to the positional discipline to to make sure that the structure is right um do you think that this is something that Arteta is going to be working with Havertz to improve uh, to to develop him into a, a set particular type of player or is it a case that he has all the qualities needed to just let him do what he needs to do express himself um you know confidently and freely um, I've never really saw Havertz as a midfielder, as I've said on the pod over the last few weeks. But obviously Arteta does. And I think the the big thing that we've seen with Arteta in the three years he's been here is when he's got a plan and a vision for a player, he very much sticks to it and makes that player work until they get it. So Havertz is a player, for me, he's, he's someone that's got all the ingredients um, as Harry said, he's deceptively quick. Uh, he makes a lot of runs off the ball. And he's someone with the attacking side of Shaka's game that we saw last season. He could really thrive in that area. The big question mark for me is when you're playing a Man City or someone like that, does he have the defensive side of the game? At home, in the against sides that we should be blowing off the park, absolutely, he can play as an eight there. I think so can Smith-Rowe, so potentially Vieira if he sorts his weaknesses out more. But I think the big thing with Havertz is he's a lot stronger than people realise. It, it comes down to the tracking, the very much that positional discipline, and it's whether or not he can crack that and stay switched on. So what, when I've watched Havertz, a lot of what I've seen is kind of a, a bit the way Ozil used to, who just kind of nods off for a period of the game. And Aloui runs, he's very good at finding space and so on. In that left eight position, a huge amount of the game is played without the ball. So I think Shaka was averaging around 45 touches a game, where when Thomas Partey at six was averaging double. And I think Odegaard was coming out with about 65, 70 touches a game. So that position, you're not going to be on the ball a huge amount. And I guess... For the attacking side, as Havertz is a player that likes the layoffs, flick-ons and so on, and those runs into the box, he could really thrive. It is down to the defensive side. But as I've said, when Arteta has an idea, he very much sticks to it. And uh, we've seen what he did with Martinelli. Uh, hopefully that's what's happening with Smith-Rowe. And a lot of players have improved massively because he, he just works things with them. But it, it does come down to whether he can do it off the ball. But at the same time, I think if Arteta has dropped $65 million on him, he will have spoken to him at length, and this will be a sign in that he's absolutely sure that he's got the work ethic and the desire to, I guess, reinvent himself at Arsenal because he's had a very, very mixed time at Chelsea. Their fans, if you read the Twitters and speak to Chelsea fans, They've got very mixed views of him because I think on his day, he can light up any stadium. But whenever he's off it, he can go missing in games very easily. But um, we read out the stats on the 15-minute show on the pod last week. And 
a lot of things he was finishing in the top categories for Chelsea. So he's definitely a great player. It's just down to Arteta to refine his game a bit and get, really extract the dangerous side of the game and make him into a real killer the way he's done with Shaka over the last 12 months. Mm. Well, in in the coming week, we're probably going to announce the next two signings, one of them being Durian Timber, um, which uh, kind of appeared from nowhere. It was one of those... Um, one of those transfer rumours that gathered pace really, really quickly. And we know that the deal is reported to be valued at about £45 million. And on a, on a five-year deal, um, we know that this young man can play as, well, predominantly as a centre-back. He can also play uh, across the flank, um, across the back. And he will most likely be a rotation type player I mean that's the kind of that's what that's that's that that's the feeling I get with this kind of deal Harry what do you think because the the, the threat is here that to put someone like that on the bench um potentially could hinder his progression but also the um the momentum that he's gathering at Ajax could be stalled um he's had warnings from um Van Basten about you know the, the the potential of playing on the bench and how that could be a hindrance on him. What are your thoughts on it? I'm not too worried about that at this stage because a he's a young man. B he'll be coming into a new club in a new league, and sometimes I think it works in players' favours when they're not necessarily going to be massively relied upon from the beginning. It gives him time to settle down, understand his surroundings. I mean, take Jakub Kivior for example. He came into the club and, you know, he was coming from Serie A, coming from Spezia, different league, different level. And Arsenal hardly used him at the beginning. It took him a little bit of time. And I know people were sort of calling for him to play instead of Rob Holding when we went through that difficult period after William Saliba picked up the injury. But actually, Arsenal sort of not rushing him in and not throwing him to the Lions as such actually benefited Jakob Kivior. And then when he did come into the side, he looked really assured, really accomplished. And Mikel Arteta has since spoken about the fact that just at that time that Saliba picked up that knock, he wasn't quite 100% ready. His his English had gotten better. He, he settled down with his teammates. So I think when it comes to Yuri and Timber, it's not a bad thing that he may not be massively relied upon from the off. I think it gives him time to settle down and, and that can be a good thing for some players. In terms of where he's going to play, there's a lot of talk about Urien Timber playing as a right back. And a lot of journalists have reported that actually that's what he's been brought in to do. I don't think he's been brought in to play solely as a right back. I think he's been brought in as someone who can cover a number of positions. Again, we go back to that word versatility. Mikel Arteta is not looking to have an overbloated squad, but what he does want to have is players that can fill into different positions so that he can shake things up a little bit. When he picks up injuries, he's able to shuffle the pack without it sort of really seeing the level of the group drop. This thing about him playing at right back, you know, it is true. He has the attributes to do that. He has played on the right of a back three for the Netherlands on a number of occasions. But if you look at all of his, I think, 32 appearances for Ajax last season, every single one of them was at centre-back. So this is not something he does regularly. This is not something he's done regularly throughout his career. Very comfortable on the ball. 
isn't the biggest centre-half in the world in terms of his size and stature, which is, again, why people are very quick to kind of put him into the fullback bracket, I think. Um, but I think he's coming in as the Rob Holding, the backup to the right centre-back position, someone who can rotate with Ben White, who can swap with Ben White. Um, you know, he is very comfortable on the ball. He can bring the ball out of the defence in the way that Saliba can, but Rob Holding couldn't. So I think there's a lot... Um, to process with this one. I think we kind of just got to wait and see, but I think he's a really good sign-in, a really good capture. I must admit, I thought he'd be Man United bound this summer, um, but, you know, they might have beat us to Lissandro Martinez last time out, uh, but they're not going to beat us to Yuri and Timber this time. Yeah, and Adam, it definitely seems like a very exciting type of uh, move and uh, deal that Arsenal are going to be wrapping up. Um, a, a very, very young individual, but someone with um, a lot of promise coming into the Premier League. He doesn't suit the archetypal centre-back, you know, someone with a physical stature, someone who is necessarily um, comes with a lot of, you know, strength and depth. However, um, very, very similar profile to someone like Martinez uh, are you looking at him to 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 come straight into the you know in in the first season and make an impact or do you think this is someone as Harry said um probably better to nurture and allow him to um grow with time um you know uh, as compared to Kivio um I think a bit of both um he, he is slightly different to Martinez he, he's a few inches taller than him I think he, he's 5'11 and a bit just under six foot um, so he's someone that I expect to be eased in a bit, but also to be given game time. I think the KVR example is a really good one there because KVR did make an impact last season. He was someone at uh, the Newcastle game in particular. He was fantastic. He had a good game against Chelsea. And he was someone we saw towards the end of the season in the Forest game and the Wolves game go into left back as well. So it's kind of, that same thing with versatility. I see Timber as someone that can play backup for Saliba, also backup for Ben White. Um, the same potentially for Zinchenko. And given his ball playing skills, he could even drop into midfield at times. And it it depends. Like if you look at last season, uh, Ben White was taken off around the 70 minute mark in a lot of games and then when Tommy Asu got injured he had to play 90 every week and that was something that I felt had an impact on us as well so whilst I don't expect Timber to be thrown straight in as a starter I do think he's going to get a lot of minutes and it may be first month or so we don't see a huge amount of him but whenever he gets on the pitch I expect him to make an impact and we're going to be playing a lot of games next season and it's not like Europa League the Champions League it's going to be very very competitive and we're going to we're going to need to manage our squad much better so I could see him potentially starting 25 games across all competitions next season and again that's not you're not talking about an out and out starter there but you're talking about someone that's getting a lot of minutes and a lot of rotation so Again, Arteta, like, a bit like Havertz, this is a fairly large fee. I think it's a 36 million base plus four or five in add-ons. It's someone that Arteta clearly trusts. And Man United pushed very hard to get Timber last year. And I think, going by reports, that Timber was actually their first choice over Martinez. And at the time when we were being linked to Martinez, I was a bit worried about a player coming from the Netherlands because we've seen a lot of players fail from that league. 
However, the way Martinez has adapted gives me real hope about Timber. Mm. And of course, the big signing that uh, everyone's talking about um, for the past week or so, we've been, you know, will it happen? Won't it happen? Lots of back and forths with West Ham. But we know that the fee has been agreed for Declan Rice, £105 million with add-ons. Harry, the deal itself is a really, really big one because in terms of um, what it means for Arsenal, the 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 uh, I don't know. I guess I guess the the, the image that it, that, that it portrays Arsenal in, and it, you know, to rival clubs and to other players. Um, but also a, a big statement for what's to come next season, and I guess this confirms it, really, doesn't it? We are most definitely going to be challenging, or we have to be with a, with a signing like that. Um, what what are your thoughts on Declan Rice in terms of uh, where where he's going to be utilised in midfield? Uh, what are his key strengths, and you know what does this mean for the overall, I guess, the morale at Arsenal going into next season? Well, I'm obviously pleased um, because I like Declan Rice as a player. Um, again, let's get it out of the way nice and early. When it comes to overpaying, I think we've been done a little bit here as well. Um, I know some people will say, look, it's because we're signing West Ham's captain. We're a Premier League rival, all the rest of it, London rival, all of that. I understand why there's a premium on Declan Rice. But the truth is, he's for me, he's not quite worth £105 million at this point. He might go on to pay us back every penny and that would be great. Um, but for me, it was a deal that in an ideal world, we would have done it around about 80 to 85 million pounds. Arsenal tried um, from that starting point. Clearly, it didn't work. Um, but I think had Arsenal started at a higher amount, we probably would have been paying 120 odd million now. So although Arsenal got a lot of stick and criticism for the way they went about this negotiation, I think actually they've handled it perfectly. And the minute it looked like the deal could be in danger, the minute it looked like Manchester City uh, were hovering, Arsenal took decisive action, met West Ham's asking price. And here we are now, hopefully waiting for the confirmation of this deal. Great signing, great player, um, adds a lot to our midfield, adds leadership, adds uh, energy, adds um, physicality. I thought at times towards the back end of last season, we just looked a little bit weak in the midfield, particularly when we came up against Manchester City uh, at the Etihad. We just looked fragile in that sort of area of the park. People maybe not at 100% contributing to that. But I think the interesting thing about Declan Rice is, again, we keep saying, I keep using this word, I've been using it all summer, versatility because he can play as that six if you want him to sit at the heart um, of your side in the, the base of your midfield, clean up around the defence. Um, and he can also play as a box-to-box -box player in an eight position as well. And where, where I was talking about Havertz earlier, maybe not having that necessarily defensive instinct to give us that balance in midfield with Odegaard on the other side, mm. Declan Rice, for me, 100% has that. And that's why I think that this is a really, really good signing for us because of all the boxes that he ticks. It's a statement signing on top of all of that. On top of the actual football, he's a real statement signing because we know that Manchester City were interested. And I'm not buying this nonsense that they had no interest in him and it wasn't ever genuine. Of course it was. You don't bid 80 plus million pounds for somebody you're not interested in. Manchester City went to, to Declan Rice's people were told that he was headed for Arsenal and decided that they wouldn't go any further as a result. That's that's what I believe's happened there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really, really pleased with this one and I can't wait for the announcement to come 
so that we can move to phase two of the window, which feels to me like it's going to be really different before possibly a phase three towards the end. I love that. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say this is the first time that I've heard someone uh, break down the transfer window in that kind of way, the, the, the three different phases. It builds that excitement and that buzz up. Sorry, Adam, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask Harry about um, the point on overpaying because I, I kind of agree that we've overpaid, but at the same time, given the inflated fees we're seeing, whatever I think a player's worth now, I kind of double it because that's just how crazy the market's gone. But do you think that this deal is one of those, because it's been done early, that we could be looking back towards the end of the window and saying, actually, Arsenal got value for Declan Rice, given that he's got a superb attitude, his abilities were already there, but there's also so much room for improvement. And we're seeing the likes of Sabosloy, who was a player that got six Bundesliga goals last season, go for around 70 million. So... Could it be that whilst it looks very, very steep now in two months when we enter panic station, that that deal actually looks like a pretty good one for Arsenal? Yeah, for sure. I I don't disagree with you at all. I think it is one of those that maybe in a couple of months we'll be looking at and saying, actually, you know what, I feel a lot better about this. I think Arsenal are or were willing to go slightly above their valuation for the player to get him in early. And uh, this is something that's been a big deal at Arsenal over the last couple of years. If you go back to last season, you think about the summer that we had, we managed to get the bulk of our business done nice and early. And what that meant was going into pre-season, you had everybody involved, everybody integrated, everybody on board. And I remember watching Arsenal in pre-season last summer and thinking, wow, you can see that cohesion. You can see what Jesus, for example, brought to the team straight away. And that made me really, really excited for the new season. And we started the campaign like a house on fire, five wins from five. And I think Mikel Arteta, having experienced that really bad start the season before that, knows how important it is to get everybody in the door, get everybody sort of intertwined together, get everybody singing from the same page when you kick off your campaign. And I think if if the club had to finance an extra sort of five, six million pounds in in any case to, to get those deals done. I think Mikel Arteta and Edu would have been pushing for it and uh, referencing the importance of getting people in through the door early. So yeah, maybe, um, maybe we will look back on it and he'll be brilliant and we'll say, my God, this is a 120, 150 million pound player and we managed to get him for 105. But I think for me, I'm always more wary, I guess, when it's English players and the reason for that is because I feel like there is always a premium on an English player. And in the past, you know, we've seen many instances of players that actually weren't worth that kind of money and probably wouldn't have ever been spoken about in that type of bracket had they not been English. So maybe there's a bit of that. Maybe there's a bit of PTSD for me uh, when it comes to that kind of thing. I mean, even just quickly look at Mason Mount. You know, he's got one year left on his contract. And you're talking about a crazy amount of money for him to go from Chelsea to Manchester United. If Mason Mount was a Spaniard or an Italian, I'm sure that he wouldn't be spoken about uh, in terms of that kind of value with that contract situation, plus the fact that he's desperate to get out and he's said as much himself. So, um, yeah, I, I do think there is that English premium and maybe that contributes to why I think that we've slightly overpaid as well. But delighted to have him. There's no there's no doubt about that. Mm. 
Um, Adam, does does the signing of Declan Rice for that particular fee mean that he will be expected to hit the ground running as soon as he comes in? I mean, we have to remember he's, what, 24 years old. Uh, I think Squawker put a comparison that kind of um, image out tweet uh, last week. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah. With Declan Rice, him. sorry, with Partey and, and and Rodri, and I think he he ranks, he comes second for um, the the majority of the of the stats, you know, ball recovery, pass accuracy, um, forward passes, that kind of stuff. So, is he going to be expected to to number one hit, uh, hit the ground running, and number two um, t- take that step up to that next level um, in comparison to the performances that he was putting in for West Ham last season? Yeah, I, I think I, this signing is. I can't remember another signing that Arsenal have made that I have been so confident that will work out. And I think not only will he be expected to hit the ground running by fans, I think he will personally be expected to completely hit the ground running at pace and go straight in. He's. I saw the other day. He's, he's been at a training camp in Dubai on his holiday. So this is a guy that really looks after himself on and off the pitch. I. I've been listening to various podcasts, news outlets and so on, talking about his attitude in training, apparently last to leave, first in the door every day. And it's been like that since he was in the youth team. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be massive at Arsenal because we've already got a group of players like that. So I think it's going to be a very seamless transition for him. But I think with regards to improving on things, I think just being around a higher quality of players compared to what he's been at with West Ham. And the other key thing is playing in a much more tactically structured setup than the way David Moyes sets West Ham up. We'll, we'll just see Declan Rice improve naturally in that form. So I, I think as the season goes on, we'll see him grow fairly steadily. But this is a guy that he's just there already. He's already a super player. And his ability to win the ball is... He's got, if you watch back his clips, it's the same kind of technique on tackles. It's a very centre-back technique. And um, he very much squares up to his man and he wins it with those big long legs every time. So this for me is just a superb sign. And, and the other big thing that I always talk about is perception. Games are won and lost in the tunnel. And I do also think there's an element of perception in the transfer window as whenever you line up at the start of the season. So this is a huge coup for Arsenal on that front as well. So teams look differently whenever you've got one of England's star players and a player that's been bossing it for, let's be honest, a less than average side at West Ham. So he's been the key reason that they stayed up. And I know Paqueta stepped up in the second half of the season, but Declan Rice has carried them for a couple of years now. So whenever he's playing alongside Odegaard and so on, we're going to see a new animal there. Mm. Just finally on Declan Rice, Harry, we know that you've got great Serie A knowledge and you know you know the game um, inside out. Uh, we wanted you to um, compare him to a Sandro Tonali who will be moving to Newcastle. Obviously for Milan, he played as a number eight. Um at Newcastle is yet to be seen where he's going to play, but two very similar profile of players. How do you uh, put them both up against each other? Um, it's an interesting one because I'm not as convinced that Tonali's going to be a hit 
at Newcastle as some are. I'm not saying he's going to be a failure, um, but I think they've paid a lot of money for him. I don't feel like Sandro Tonali's heart was in this move. Mm. It feels very much like a move that came about because the finance on offer was way too good for Milan to turn down and way too good in the end for Tonali to turn down once he realised that Milan were, were willing to sell him. There's been a lot going on behind the scenes at that football club. Paolo Maldini, who was key to the sort of rebuild and, and getting them back in and amongst the trophies. They went to a Champions League semi-final. They won the Scudetto, of course, the season before the one that's just finished. And there's been a massive falling out, which has seen Maldini and some of those around him leave the football club. And that's changed the dynamic there. So I feel like circumstance has taken Tonali to Newcastle more than anything else. He's been a Milan fan all his life and spoke just recently about how grateful he was to be playing for his boyhood club and the fact that he never wanted to leave. So if I were a Newcastle fan, I'd be a bit, maybe a little bit underwhelmed by the way this has come about. Um, they're getting a good player. They're getting somebody that will add something to the midfield. But Tonali, for me, hasn't got the engine that Declan Rice has got. He's not going to get up and down the pitch with the same pace. He's not got the physicality that Declan Rice has got. I think on the ball, Tonali is, is probably as good as Declan Rice. Although I would argue that when he gets into the final third, I don't think he's as creative as maybe some people think he is. Um, Declan Rice isn't exactly a creative midfield player either, but I feel like Declan Rice has a lot more of the raw attributes that a coach can then take and mould um, into, you know, a really elite player. I mean, just looking at them physically, and I think that's a big deal in the Premier League. I, I'm not one of those people that says, unless you're six foot tall, you can't play in the Premier League. But I do think that Declan Rice's physical attributes put him above Sandro Tonali with respect to what he can offer his team. Mm. Adam, going into next season, we know that teams in and around us are going to be strengthening in all areas. We know that um, naturally all teams are going to be playing at a higher level. Uh, what? Who are the teams that you're worried about going into next season? Um, obviously City. I think Liverpool are probably going to be a lot better. Sebastian is an interesting sign-in, as is McAllister, although McAllister's numbers were very much inflated by penalties last season. He only scored four open play goals and he got six pens. So obviously getting six pens in a season is a big ask. So for him to replicate those numbers again, he's going to need to get scoring a bit more freely. And uh, obviously they're linked to Lavia as well. So essentially it would be a midfield reboot for them. Gakpo started to do quite well towards the end of the season. They're going to have Diaz back. And obviously Salah is still a superb player. So I, I very much think Liverpool are going to be back. And Man United are an interesting one because they're a fairly solid team, but they definitely need a striker. And the takeover is definitely impacting their business in the window. And um, Mason Mount, I don't see him as being the ideal profile for United right now. And I'm guessing he's going to come in and replace Ericsson. But so quite clearly, they want a worker and someone a bit younger than Ericsson there, but he doesn't have the creative guile that Ericsson has. And uh, but he is still a top player. So they're going to be an interesting one, as are Newcastle, who it comes down to how well they cope with 
Champions League football and who they bring in this summer. But as a base squad, they're very, very well coached. They have a group of players that I would say play a, a fairly basic game at a high intensity and they're all around organisation. So they're kind of the main ones. I don't see Tottenham being an issue. I know they signed Madison, but I think Spurs are just, there's far too many weaknesses in that squad. And whilst they're starting 11's not the worst, a couple of injuries and the drop-off's insane for them. So I, I just about see them scraping top six, especially if Kane goes. And then Chelsea again, it's going to be a big ask for all those players to gel, having basically gutted the squad. Obviously, Havertz coming to us, Kovacic to City, Mount United, Kante gone. It's they, They've basically taken the heart out of that Champions League winning team and got a load of young players, many of whom don't have any Premier League experience. So, again, I think they're going to be better, but I, I don't think they're going to be pushing top four. So, for me the three teams in the race for the title would be us, City, and potentially Liverpool, depending on how well the new sign-in settle for them. And and Harry, what about yourself? Same question, pretty much. Who are the teams that uh, you'll be keeping an eye on and that you're quite worried about next season? It might be a little bit early, obviously. You know, the, the window's open two, two and a half weeks. Um, but we're, considering we're seeing a lot of activity in the window, who's shaping up to be the one to look out for? Yeah, I agree with Liverpool and City. I think that City, obviously, you know, they've been great for so many seasons now. As long as Pep Guardiola's there, you feel like they're going to be competitive right at the top end and they're going to be the ones setting the pace. At Liverpool, I do think that Liverpool will be much better than they were last season. And, you know, the second half of, of the previous campaign was more like the Liverpool that we've come to know over the last few years. They went on a really good run towards the back end of the season. In the end, it wasn't enough to make the Champions League, but that's because of the damage that they've done really in the first half. I've talked repeatedly about them needing to, um, you know, to build the midfield up again. Um, that was the bit last season that just wasn't working for me. Defensively, they weren't great, but I think that was a, a byproduct of their midfield not being strong enough as well. I look at the signings they've made. Alexis McAllister, good signing uh, as a boss lie, good signing as well. But I still think they probably need another defensive midfielder. I expect them to go out and get one before the window shuts. So I have to put them in the equation, given that, you know, they've been fighting at the top for, for a number of years now. Jurgen Klopp's got that know-how. He's a, a very good manager. I look at Chelsea. I don't know about Chelsea. I don't know what to expect at this stage. Man United, I think at times last season, people looked at them and maybe sort of fell into the trap of thinking they were further along the progression line than they actually were under Eric Ten Hag. But again, a lot of it will depend on the business they do. They're struggling to do the bulk of the, the work that they wanted to do this window because of this ownership cloud, which is hanging over them at the moment. So yeah, at this moment in time, City and Liverpool for me, um, not worried about Spurs at this stage. Not sure what to make of Chelsea. United a bit hit and miss. I think that Liverpool are going to improve and I think that Man City ultimately will be the pace setters again. Interesting. Well, of course, we will... Uh... We'll be keeping an eye on this as the as the window moves and progresses. Um, moving on to player sales and potential exits. We know that we've got three coming in. Uh, I guess it's only a matter of time before we start seeing 
departures. Um, we've heard earlier on this week that uh, it, it looks increasingly likely that Balogun um, will be moved on. For what fee? We yet to find out. We know Mavropanos' sell-on clause has been um, triggered, and others, as in uh, you know, young prospects like Charlie Patino as well, who are highly touted. Um, you know, as they were coming up, the 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 youth ranks look like they could be moving on as well. Um, Harry, give me your thoughts on Arsenal's departure um, phase, or you know, the the the, the players that they need to to move on because they're they're spending an increasing, uh, you know, a large amount of money. Um, they're going to have to try and level the books out. I mean, when we spoke to Andrew last week, he was certain that Arsenal needed to generate a large amount of money in their in their outgoings. How are they going to do this exactly? Because there aren't that many high profile players on that transfer um list to sell. Yeah, they do need to move some players on and and I've said for a little while that at some point KSC are going to want some kind of return. They're going to need to generate some kind of return from player sales. It's something that we've criticized Arsenal for in recent years not being very good at selling. I think I've given Edu some leeway on that because for me, you can't sell something that nobody wants. And we've been stuck with a load of players that nobody wanted that we didn't even want. Um, and we've been sort of desperately trying to move them on, rarely getting the kind of prices that we wanted for them. I don't buy into this idea of Arsenal generating like 120, 150 million this summer. I think that's far-fetched. I think that, I think that somebody like Balogun, if he's to be sold, could generate something around the 30, 35 million pound mark because he's coming off the back of a really good season. Should Arsenal decide to keep a hold of Balogun, I think you could generate 20, 25 million for Eddie and Ketia. So I think one of those two will go. Don't know which one just yet. I wonder if Mikel Arteta is going to take a look at Balogun up close again over the summer before making his decision. I think a factor with Balogun is that being the sort of centre forward for the US national team makes him commercially a really big asset. And I wonder if there'll be some pressure from the football club, given we've got American ownership, to at least consider that when making his decision on those two. Um, Granite Xhaka, is he going to go? I was convinced he was leaving at the end of the season, but that's gone really, really quiet. Some are saying that maybe that's going to happen once we make some announcements with regards to the incomings. But for me, you don't sell Granite Xhaka at 13 million euros, which is what... By Leverkusen, we're looking for. I think Arsenal need to play hardball here because we have no need to sell Granite Xhaka. Um, will Thomas Partey go? I don't know. Kieran Tierney's another one that's been touted with a move. So Arsenal have the potential to move out four or five players. You know, Nuno Tavares, another one. Lakonga, what's going to happen there? So there's options, but I don't think any of those players, with the exception of maybe Balogun and Tierney, could generate you big, substantial amounts of money. So you know, we're going to have to wait and see. I think more so for Arsenal than bringing in transfer fees. It's about keeping control of the wage bill. And and that's why they may seek to move players on, I think, because, you know, we've done a really good job of trimming that down in recent seasons and um, and seeing, of course, uh, you know, the, the benefits from that now where we were able to go that extra mile and convince players that not only is Arsenal the right footballing project, but it's the one that pays right as well. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer. When I mentioned phase one, phase two and phase three, for me, phase one was go out and get your priority targets. Phase two is 
now you have to balance it out by working on the other side of it, which is moving people on. And phase three is once you've done the bulk of that work, you reassess the situation, you reestablish sort of where you're at in terms of the overall process. And then you decide whether or not you want to dip back into the market. You review the market and see if there's any opportunities. And if there are, and you've generated finance back, then maybe you can have another go at bringing players in. But that is going to be very dependent on how phase one and phase two goes. Yeah. Adam, um, with the potential likely of uh, you know young prospects like Patino and Balogun being, being moved on, um, we know that Arsenal don't have a sterling reputation in the window when it comes to selling players and they're, they're not the best at negotiating the best deals. But um, adding things like sell-on clauses are going to be really, really important, isn't it? Um, we, we we know that Mavropanos is being touted by clubs like uh, Nottingham Forest and if Stuttgart are to move him on, Arsenal will get... Um, uh, a, a fee. 20% isn't yep, it? Yep, 20-odd percent or so, or so yep. So... Um, with the deals for, well, if we do move them on, Balogun and, and Patino, um, the figure that Harry was saying for Balogun, what did you say, Harry? Was it 25, 30 mil that you think they will be moved on? I think 30, 35. Okay. You, and it's a bit like I compare it to the Joe Willock situation where at this moment his value is at its peak because... You know, think about Joe Willock. He went on loan to Newcastle, didn't play much at Arsenal in terms of the first team, played in the Cups, Europa League, etc. Went out on loan, did really, really well. And all of a sudden he had a big value. But you knew that if he came back and again sat around on the bench, that that value would really quickly nosedive. And so it made sense for Arsenal to cash in at that point because it was only going to get worse given that he wasn't going to walk into the side. I think that's the same with Balogun. I think he's a really good talent, really promising player but he's not going to displace Jesus from the side straight away. And so if he's going to come in and hang around the bench and be in and out, that is going to impact his value and it's going to take a turn for the worse. So if really Arsenal don't see him or Arteta doesn't see him as someone that can fight for a first team place now, then I think it's the right time to cash in. Um, but then you could make that argument that actually he should fill Enketia's boots. And so you've got to make a decision between the two. But there's no place in the squad, in my opinion, for both of them. Mm. And yeah, so I mean, having said that, if 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 it's to be believed that we're not going to be able to maximise the uh, fee for someone like Balogun, um, sell-on clauses are going to be quite mandatory, isn't it, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, I personally would like to see Balogun stay, but that hinges on him getting chances. But then again, I also wouldn't be against Arsenal selling both him and Nketiah if an offer came through for Eddie. So I, I just don't see him as being good enough. Um, I, I really want Eddie to make it at Arsenal. I just don't think there's that real killer instinct that I see with other strikers. But yeah, selling clause is very much a, a way that other clubs have made money on players and kind of kept money coming in without having to sell. So you kind of get this bonus bumper in the window. And I think especially with Patino, it's one that we, we need to include there. So he's a player, I saw some teams being linked with him last week. I'm, I'm sure it was championship clubs he was being linked to. It wasn't, I did think he would get a move to a slightly higher level, but the interest doesn't seem to be there in him right now. It's, and I guess that feeds into the phase two of the window, as Harry says, where 
we are going to start entering into that. And that's maybe where we're going to see more interest in the players that we want to shift on. So sell on clauses, absolutely something that we need to include. And it's just all around getting smarter in the window, selling youth team players. So a bit like what Harry said with Balligan, with his, his value being very high. Uh, City and Chelsea have both made a lot of money over the years by flogging academy talents whenever there's there's kind of a feeling around them, but there's not necessarily a pathway to progression for them. So this is where Arsenal can get smarter in the window. It doesn't always have to be selling your key players for big fees, but if you're bringing in kind of five, 10 million for players that you don't see being first team players, but are still very good players, that's a very, very easy way of topping up your budget and ensuring that the academy is always staying like very competitive as well. And uh, I know, uh, Daniel Ballard is being linked to, I can't remember who it is, but there's a sell-on clause in his contract as well. So hopefully that's another little earner for us this summer. Mm. Okay, good stuff. Well, uh, unfortunately, um, it's now time for us to say goodbye to Harry. Um, he does have to pop off. So I want to first say a massive thank you to Harry for taking the time out to join us this evening. You can find him on Twitter at Harry uh, Simiu, and also make sure to check out the Chronicles of Aguna at Chronicles underscore FC for regular Arsenal content. Harry, um, anything in the pipeline that you want to tell us about before you go? Thank you guys for having me. Um, pleasure talking to you both. Always good to uh, chat all things Arsenal, particularly at an exciting time like this. Um, no, nothing really in the pipeline. I don't know what I'm going to be doing from day to day. It's just it's reactionary to what's going on um, in the Arsenal world at the moment. That's what happens during the summer. But um, yeah, as you said, check out the Chronicles of Aguna. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to keep across uh, everything that I'm doing. And once again, big thank you to you guys for having me on. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Harry, for popping on. Thanks, Harry. Okay, so moving on to um, all things Arsenal. <laughs> uh, we've got good news, well, potential good news of Granite Xhaka. Um, reports coming out today that he could potentially stay. Now, we were speaking off air before we pressed the record button. I was none the wiser of this Um news this bit of news only because of the uh, weird um kind of last 24 to 48 hours that we've been having on twitter we didn't actually speak about it should we just quickly just give our thoughts on this because yeah, it's, it, it's been it's been bizarre hasn't it a whirlwind of emotions for me anyway i mean this past week has been all declan rice and then when this bombshell came out about elon musk um doing what he does best which is ruining this incredible uh, community that we've built on Twitter. I just, yeah, I just needed to take a step back. It all got a little bit, a little bit too much for me. What's going to happen? Yeah. What's going to happen to this, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the Twitter side of things. I'm seeing a lot of fans um, are almost instantly reacting by going to, another social media platform. I can't remember the, the, the name of it. Um, Truth Social or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Truth Social. Uh, Twitter remains as the central point for football fans to come, to discuss. It's where breaking news happens. It's where things like Kai Havertz being announced before the official announcement happens, you know? So this is detrimental. And for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, maybe Adam, you can give us a little insight and also kind of your um, thoughts on it. 
Uh, well, yeah, it's been a very weird 24 hours. We've had the, the rate limit exceeded where Musk decided to put a cap on how many tweets you can see, which is bizarre for someone that's trying to sell advertising space and people are restricted to how much they can use the platform. So it, it's just another move for Musk to be daft. But I guess first off, we should say that if Twitter's down, you can find the Arsenal Therapy podcast on Instagram TikTok and of course the YouTube show as well. So, uh, so if you are tr- having trouble with Twitter, head over to any of those platforms. But yeah, it does seem to be back to normal today, which I expected. I expected it to be more dramatic than it was with him saying. So it's been uplifted. To your feedback, yeah. So he's reset it now, so you can watch whatever you want. So. It's um, it lasted about twenty four hours, but yesterday I was googling transfer news like it was two thousand and nine, <laughs> and um, thankfully Football London have their like pretty much live articles where they just do updates, so it was a pretty good way of finding out what was going on. But it was a really bizarre day, and obviously, maybe in some ways it made my life a bit more healthy because I wasn't just refreshing Twitter waiting to see the mm. Declan Rice news. So. So yeah, it, it kind of helped me shut off for three or four hours, which I haven't been able to do since the window opened. But but yeah, it looks like it's all been reset now and hopefully Arsenal Twitter will live to fight another day because who'd have thought Arsenal make a £100 million sign-in and we genuinely break Twitter. <laughs> it, it gives me um, Super League vibes, you know, this whole saga. Uh, you know, initial idea comes out, 24 hours later, they make a U-turn. Yeah, that's yeah 100%. So- but yeah, but on the um, Shaka one, yep. the, um, so that story came from Art de Roche of The Athletic, who does the Handbrake Off podcast, really good Arsenal journalist. And now... Um, Generally, pretty on the button when it comes to Arsenal news. So I, I would definitely take that story seriously. And he said that Arsenal aren't desperate to sell Shaka, nor do they need to sell him, which for me would be great. If if Brennan Shaka is willing to stay and fight for his place at Arsenal, I would absolutely love that. I think I'd be willing to let Thomas Partey go if Shaka was staying because I don't want to lose the two of them at once. And whilst I think Thomas Partey is a better player than Granit Xhaka, Xhaka is available every game. Mm. He's a real leader in the dressing room. And as we've said numerous times in this show, Thomas gives you 20 glistening games a season where he is virtually unplayable. He's got those really light feet, lovely passes, glides past players. But when he's not on it or... Uh, when he's not on it we saw against City he got torn to shreds and then the other thing is his injury problems so that's why for me I'd be willing to let him move on and obviously Declan Rice should be done in the next 48 hours and we've also got Jorginho there we've still got El Nani who knows what's going to happen there so I think we're actually very well equipped in this sixth position however in the eighth position I think having Shaka there would be very important. And again, a bit like what I said with Yuri and Timber, I felt he would start play about 25 games from the start next season. I would expect the same of Granite Xhaka, where he, that he still starts a lot of games, even though he wouldn't be the first name on the team sheet in his position anymore. So we, I, I do expect more rotation and him, potentially Havertz, Smith Rowe, 
possibly Vieira if he can sort his physicality out. There's game time to, to kind of force your way back into the team. And I do find it odd that there's so much criticism of Balogun for saying that he wants to know that he's going to play. People are taking that, that he doesn't want to fight for his place, which I kind of don't disagree with. But also people seem very content with Shaka not wanting to fight for his place. And it's like, oh, he's, he can move on. But the big thing is I don't think Arsenal should be doing at Granite Shaka any favours when it comes to the transfer fee. And there were reports through the week that Arsenal actually won 20 million now and not 14 as originally reported. So if that's the case, I think getting in around the 20 million mark for him is more than fair. And also he's been handsomely paid at Arsenal for a long time and it's only in the last 18 months that he's really stepped up. So he's had a very mixed time at Arsenal. Let's not gloss over that. So it's not like a club legend that you're saying, you know what, you've given us your your best years, you've won everything, you can go on at a low price fee. I think we should be acting like a big club here and saying, you know what, you want to go, you've still got two years left in your contract, we'll sell you for the right price, but it has to be right for us and you. It's not just a case of you going back to Germany because you want to live there. So if we do sell them, for me, it should be for a big fee. But in an ideal world, I would really like to keep Granit Xhaka. Mm. It's interesting to hear you say that you're go- you're 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 picking Grant Shaka over Thomas Partey on the basis of availability. Do you think now that we're signing a number of you know high-profile depth type of players or just you know a- additional individuals who can now rotate with um, you know anyone in the starting lineup? Do, do do you think we need to now prioritize something like availability ahead of the impact of a player? Yeah, it's. I think part of it is with Thomas Partey, as much as I love him, I think we've got very good depth in that position. And uh, I guess he could play it right back. But with Timber coming in, I don't see the real need for him there. And obviously, Tommy Yasu is going to be coming back. I think Granit Xhaka is someone who can fill in at left back if needed. He can obviously play as an eight. He could play as a six again if needed, even though we don't really like him there. But I I do think, given the number of games and the intensity, that uh, availability is absolutely something that we we need to look at because you can have a massive squad, but if your best players and most important players are missing 10 to 15 games a season through injury, it becomes very difficult to sustain your momentum yeah and staying on that good positive news well potential news that granite shaka should stay should stay oh it will stay um we know that ethan uh Nguaneri signed or will be signing a deal to stay at arsenal um this is a really interesting one for me because of what happened to mari hutchinson was it last season or last summer yeah last summer he decided to to go off to chelsea rather than stay at arsenal um but you know, when when we're looking at um, youth prospects and the tough decision that they need to make, whether they 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 stay on, whether they move on, um, we know someone this week who was it, the central midfielder who's been at Arsenal for a very long time, moved on um, to Wigan. Who did Wigan sign recently? I can't believe I've forgotten his name. Let me just quickly put it up. Um, it was. This might take a while. 
Ah, here we go. Um, Matt Smith. So yes. yeah, Matt Smith moved on. Yeah, I guess he was forced to because his future wasn't going to be at Arsenal. Someone like Amari Hutchinson, who had such a high ceiling, really well spoken about individual, um, moved on to Chelsea and I guess has now sabotaged his career. Ethan Waneri similarly had that, um, yeah, very similar kind of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> the reputation. Yeah, yeah, the very similar reputation. Yeah. And now he's decided to, to sign a new deal despite knowing it's going to be so hard and so incredibly tough to break into the Arsenal team. Are, are youth prospects better off staying at Arsenal considering how many how good we are and how many good players we have um, as a, you know, 20-man squad? Yeah, I think if you're good enough, you will force your way into the team. I have to remember, like, Cesc Fabregas retired from football yesterday. We, when Cesc made his Arsenal debut, it was during the Invincible season. He was 16 years old when he scored his first goal for the club. And then, obviously, the end of that season, uh, well, beginning of the next, he made his debut in the Community Shield and played a lot of football in the 2004-05 season. So there's an example of a player who came into the best Arsenal side of all time and basically forced his way into a midfield of Patrick Vieira and Gilberto. That shows if you're good enough, you will make it. And uh, with Amari Hutchinson, one of the things that I've only just realised today about him was he actually started out at Chelsea and he was there for four years. And then he, he went to Arsenal after that. So he's gone back to Chelsea again. So... I guess the situation was probably a bit different to how it was fully reported, but I, I do think a large part of it was down to money. With Ethan Moneri, he's been chased by City and Chelsea, so there's top clubs looking at him. But the most interesting part of Moneri's deal is the fact he's agreed a pro contract as well as the scholarship terms. So when he turns 17, that contract kicks in, and apparently he's been... He's the highest paid academy player in Arsenal's history. So this is a player that the club's done everything they can to keep him. And obviously he's made his first team debut at 15. I think this is someone we see as a really, really special talent alongside Lewis Skelly. So in terms of should players stay, I don't think there's a blanket rule in football that a certain club is the best pathway for anyone. But I think for the really talented players, and Wanari definitely fits that category. When you watch him, he's a very, he's very, very strong for his sixteen now. But yeah, physically, he looks like a player that's ready. He needs to develop probably more the the off the ball side of the game. But he looks like someone who could come in and play first team football very, very early on, and he could be someone we even see in the cups this year. So for him, I think the way he will progress at Arsenal would be hugely beneficial, whereas he goes to City or Chelsea or someone like that. He's one of many very talented academy kids and he hasn't come through from a very young age. So again, I think there's that nurturing environment when someone's been there from whatever age, like six, eight, whatever, you kind of grow with the club and the club are very aware of your development plan and what you need to do Whereas to move to either Chelsea or City at 16, yes, 
they've got great academies, they've got great coaching setups, but he's essentially starting from scratch there. So this for me is, it's really, really great news. And I think this guy could be a future star at Arsenal, but there's never any guarantees with academy prospects. But from what I've seen of him, he looks like the real deal. Yeah, and I think it's equally important for someone like him to just remain patient, especially in a in an era where 18-year-olds are expected to come in and make a direct impact. And if they don't, then that's it, they've kind of missed their chance. With someone like him, Arsenal have clearly identified a real talent, um, you know, with Jack Wilshere singing his praises um, last season. We we know his here is someone who can be molded into a real gem. Um, so whatever developmental plan Arsenal has for him, I think for someone of that age, sixteen years old, he needs to very much keep his head down, not get lost in the crowd. Well, he won't get lost in the crowd, but not 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 get lost in the noise of it all, um, and just work hard. Take the advice on board, whatever whatever that his coaches are advising him, whether he needs a loan spell, whether he needs to just maintain the position where he's at, um, just do what the club are telling him to do because clearly uh, the club know what they're doing. Um, they've they've you know already put a number of graduates on the very highest levels of football. Uh, so moving on, finally, just before we end the show, um, I want to talk about potential deals that could be done moving on, but also um, how much Arsenal could realistically spend because we know these three deals will take our spending up to about 200 mil. Um, What positions do you think need most attention next after these three deals are confirmed? And how much more do you think Arsenal could spend? We know that in midfield, there needs to be at least one more signing and I think at the time of recording Romano's just put out a tweet to say that Liverpool are in for um, Lavia. Arsenal are also interested but they're yet to explore anything until either party or Shaka are moved on. Yeah, Lavia for me is someone we've, we've talked about quite a bit on both the 15-minute show and this pod and I didn't want him coming in as a party replacement. I thought that was a huge ask for him to come in and do that. Given he's played 29 games, the 50 million fee to me seems excessive because although very good, he, he he's played in a side that have just been relegated. And I do wonder if he's someone that you, you look at and you think, you know what, for 20 million more, we could potentially get a Caicedo because I think his price will come down. But... I I think it depends on Shaka or Party. Obviously, we've just been talking about Granite Shaka and I really want him to stay. If that's the case, I don't know if I, I would probably leave midfield and prioritize bringing in a right midfielder and especially someone with pace. So I would love us to be able to bring on a stretcher that can you can ping that long ball to late in the game and really keep the opposition on their toes and help Arsenal play higher up the pitch. But realistically, if we are talking to it's around 220 for these three deals the Rice, Havertz, and Timber that's a, that's an insane amount of money, and we're talking mm. about adding more on top. So, when it comes to realistic spending for Arsenal, if we add even if we went for 50 million player, which isn't 50, 50 million isn't what it used to be, that takes us on to 270 million. And I think it, it, 
gets into the point now where any money that's available for transfers has probably been spent on these three deals. And the, the phase three of the window that Harry spoke about, that's something where I would imagine will be reliant on sales. So if Kieran Tierney goes, how much do we bring in? Say 35 million for him. Um, if we can bring in 35 for Balogun and then maybe 10 for a Patino, um, Tavares, again, if we can get 10, depending on if I know West Ham seem to be interested, we sell them within the league, I'd like to push it to 15. So that's where you can start seeing those numbers add up. And I guess it comes down to who we sell, whether or not we can add a, a top quality player or we're going for a younger player that we're going to develop over the next year. But w- where do you stand on this one? How much do you think we'll spend and what do you think we need after these three deals come in? I think the club are viewing this window as probably the most important window based on what they've witnessed uh, off the back of last season. They recognise that here is a really unique opportunity for us and we probably our cycle probably only lasts for another two seasons. So if we don't get it right now, we're going to be missing a really unique opportunity. And I think the owners have told Arteta and Edu that you go out and you spend whatever needs spending. And we will have to we have to come up with a plan that enables us to balance these books out um, so that we at least don't break any financial fair play rules. That's the impression that I'm getting at the moment. We've done free deals. It takes us over 200 mil just inside the two weeks that we've had of the window being open. There is still so much more activity to happen. We know that in terms of outgoings, I don't think we'll generate as much as we are projecting. So, And we know that there still needs to be at least three more signings, I think, anyway. we still, I, I think it will be naive of us to not get another midfielder. I think that we need to be looking at that. Um, Wait, yeah. Is that e- even if Shaka stays? No. So... It, um. Hmm. Interesting. It's really difficult to say because we're le- if we're being led to believe that Havertz is going to be playing as a midfielder, then I guess no, we 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 won't need another midfielder. But I think it's always safe to have a uh, uh, a traditional midfielder, an out and out centre mid who 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 is you know that's his position. He plays that for whatever club he's playing at now. I, I like the idea of having as many versatility type players as possible. But when we look at, um, for example, Zinchenko, he is as versatile as it comes as a as a as a, as a midfielder. Um, but his limitations are clear to see as a fullback because defensively he's woeful. So I think it will give us it will do us more. F- it'll give us more benefits and it'll do us all favors to bring in another midfielder who is a specialist as six or an eight. Um, mm. But I do worry about um, goals that sent forward. I think that teams are going to be a lot more clued on as to how we attack down the flanks and they will be very aware of movements from Martinelli and Saka, even overlapping or inverted wingers. So I think a lot more focus will have to be driven down the centre of the pitch and how we're going to try and open up channels to get the ball into the box, um, you know, via um, line-breaking direct balls, uh, but also 
having a, a a fox in the box type of player. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Balogun and Nketia. But I think if the club are serious in um, you know challenging next season, they're going to have to look at someone who is of a different profile. I've been calling for. I've been calling out for um, you know a, a, a physical, um, well built. I guess what type of player would you call him? Um, a Giroud type of player or a target man? A target man. That's that's the word. Yeah. So I've been I've been I've been calling out for a target man for a good few seasons now. I think if Arsenal do sign a target man, then we've we've added fifteen plus goals to next season automatically. Um, but aside from that, there aren't that many positions that are left to be filled in. I guess it all depends on outgoings. If we are to keep Kieran Tierney, we don't really need to worry about that fullback position. Um, on the right-hand side as well, because we've we've Ben White playing there, and if we're to believe that Timber is also, uh, you know, he's he's able to play there, Fine. We've also got Kivior as well, who's developing into a fine player. Um, in the centre of midfield, we've spoken about. I guess we we haven't really. I don't think anyone has has picked up on the um, the nine. Sorry, the ten. Um, Odegaard's rock position. Who 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 comes in for him? Because is Fabio Ver- is is Fabio Vieira ready? Um, is Kai Havertz someone who's who's capable of playing in that position as well? Uh, do we look at someone like Charlie Patino potentially, or Emil Smith Rowe? Maybe we know that Smith Rowe might be playing as a, as a, as an eight. Um, yeah, well, Odegaard plays as an eight as well. He, he's not really playing the ten role anymore. So mm. it's uh, Vieira is the obvious one, but I think you're right. It's is he ready? And from what I see, no. I'm hoping he's going to come back this summer and look a bit stronger, a bit more ready, a bit hungrier and a bit less scared on the pitch. So, so yeah, that, that is something that there's question marks around because you take Odegaard out of the team and it's, yeah, there would be a huge gap. So, but at the same time, I, I do worry about adding too much in one window. So there is always that very fine balance of, I, and I, I think that's where the, the phase two and three, as Harry put, comes in. It's like, let's see who leaves and see how things work out in pre-season. There's always things that happen in pre-season. Young players come back, they look better, they, they've they learned a lot and they kind of have that new hunger for the new season. So, so yeah, I guess let's see what happens. I personally would love a target man as well, but at the same time, for me, I think addressing the number of minutes Saka's playing is really important. So that's why I would probably go for a, a player like maybe a Musa Diaby this summer because mm. he's and there have been links to him, but I haven't seen anything credible. He's someone that plays roughly 50-50 on the left and the right. He's very quick. He's got two good feet, um, scores goals, creates a lot. He would have an adaptation period from the Bundesliga, but at the same time, a bit like what we said with Timber, we're able to bring these players in now without expecting them to be the star straight away. And that could potentially be something that went wrong with Pepe. He wasn't quite the right fit anyway, but we expected a superstar to hit the ground running. 
And a lot of that came with his price tag. So being able to add someone like Diaby now where it wouldn't be right, we need X number of goals from you straight away. That would be great. And then next summer is where I see that that center forward coming into the club and someone that I would really keep an eye on there this summer or this season is Evan Ferguson to see how he develops because he looks like a very good player, but he's still very raw, very young. And if he gets the game time this season, he could be someone on Arsenal's radar next year because I think he, he's got all the tools to be a top center forward and, we know Arteta likes young players with experience. Mm. Okay, good stuff. Uh, I, I think it's that time of the show again, um, where unfortunately we must say goodbye. Um, I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened up until this point. Thank you very, very much. If you did enjoy this episode, please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Let us know what you thought of the show by reaching out to us on Twitter. You can find us over there at Arsenal Therapy. You can also find Adam over there at Adam Keys underscore, and you can find myself over there at Gunner Since 96. As always, we will be back next week to give you your your usual weekly dose of Arsenal therapy. But if you can't wait until then, head over to the Arsenal Therapy YouTube channel for the 15-minute show where we'll be taking you through all the latest bits of Arsenal updates every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8.30am. And yes, you guessed it, the show is indeed 15 minutes long. So until then, take care of yourselves, have a good week, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>